0: sooner or later one has to take size if one is to remain human what chilling words from mr heng about the conflict in vietnam in the 1950s i'm roger and this is book Shook and today's podcast is all about the second half of the quiet american by graham Greene, published in 1955 So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can either comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something in the podcast you agree with or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of The Quiet American from part two, chapter four on page 99 or 50%. If you're kindling, so we left the novel with this bazooka shell that bursts on the tower and blasts Fowler off the tower. He's in a lot of pain and agony. Pyle actually rescues him, he saves his life. So he's got now another issue with Pyle, which is he's indebted to him. Fowler gets a letter from his wife saying that she doesn't want to have a divorce. And he lies to Pyle and writes, saying that he can marry Fu Wong. His assistant, Dominguez, unfortunately dies. And Dominguez really was someone who could help him see the truth of things. He recounts a day when Dominguez asked him to meet his friend, Mr Chu, Mr Chu's friend, Mr Heng, who we find out is a communist sympathiser, shows him a plastic mould made by a US company called Dialacton. It was flawed, this particular plastic mould, and was discarded by a Mr Moi who has connections with General Tay. Now, General Tay is a democratic sympathiser who wants to reunite Vietnam. Is it possible that... It is part of some kind of rod, I'm thinking, or a weapon, this mold. Maybe it's designed for making some kind of weapon. There is an implied connection between General Tay and Pyle. And I'm thinking these plastics aren't for toys, they are for creating molds for weapons. The Americans are funding General Tay. Remember, Tay was against the Viet Minh, who are communist sympathizers. He contemplates inviting Pyle over to dinner. Remember, he's just saved his life. Quote, should I invite my saviour to dinner? I sometimes wondered, or should I suggest a meeting for a drink in the bar of the Continental? It was an unusual social problem, perhaps depending on the value one attributed to one's life. A meal and a bottle of wine or a double whiskey? That's the value he puts on his own life. Pyle confronts Fowler, saying he was lying about marrying he says, quote, you'll keep her as a comfortable lay until you leave. We fast forward to after Pyle's death. Vigo, who's the police chief, tells Fowler that Pyle's dog has been found near his body. And it may have some evidence on his paws. Dun, dun, dun. It appears that Pyle's imported American plastic is being used to create these Bicycle bombs. I thought as much. Quote, this is Fowler. What do I think of next? People said at parties. And the whole absurd affair was symbolised for me too in the bicycle wheel gaily spinning like a top in the middle of the boulevard. So he sees this bomb go off and this bicycle wheel gaily spinning. It's a part of the efforts to undermine communist sympathies. Fowler finds out where the bombs are being made It's in Mr Mui's garage And when he gets home, Fuong has finally left him We have a flashback and now Fuong, as I say, has left him And has gone off with Pyle He agrees to go on a dangerous raid in the north He's feeling really, really low And he just thinks, what the heck, let's just do it so he goes off to this really horrible raid and we see the description of the folly of war. Listen to this. He's on a dangerous dive-bombing run. Quote, Down we went again, away from the gnarled and fissured forest towards the river, flattening out over the neglected rice fields, aimed like a bullet at one small sampan. Now, a is a fishing boat. At one small sampan on the yellow stream, the cannon gave a single burst of tracer and the sampan blew apart in a shower of sparks. We didn't even wait to see our victims struggling to survive, but climbed and made for home. I thought again as I had thought when I saw the dead child at Fat Diem. I hate war. There had been something so shocking in our sudden fortuitous choice of a prey. We had just happened to be passing. One burst only was required. There was no one to return our fire. We were gone again, adding our little quota to the world's dead. Mm. Continuing the narrative, he chats with an officer about the brutality of war. And the officer, before his deadly dive bomb, had, quote, winked at me, with a professional brutality like a Christmas mask from which a child's eyes peer through the holes in the paper. And then Pyle and Fowler have a meeting. Fowler is courteous and accepts that Pyle has taken Fuong. Fowler tells Pyle not to trust the advice of the pro-democracy writer York Harding. So if you remember from the first part of the book, Pyle was very, very interested in this book by York Harding who was promoting the idea of a third force being needed in Vietnam. Quote, Pyle, don't trust too much in York Harding. And Pyle says, York? He stared up at me from the first landing. Fowler continues, We're the old colonial peoples, Pyle, but we've learnt a bit of reality. We've learnt not to play with matches. This third force, it comes out of a book, that's all. General Tay's only a bandit with a few thousand men. He's not a national democracy. It was as if he had been staring at me through a letterbox to see who was there, and now, letting the flap fall, had shut out the unwelcome intruder. His eyes were out of sight. I don't know what you mean, Thomas. Those bicycle bombs, they were a good joke, even though one man did lose a foot. But, Pyle, you can't trust men like Tay. They aren't going to save the East from communism. We know their kind. We? The old colonialists... And Pa retorts with, I thought you took no signs. I don't, Pyle, but if someone has got to make a mess of things in your outfit, leave it to Joe. Go home with Fong, forget the third force. And Pa responds with, of course, I always value your advice, Thomas, he said formally. Well, I'll be seeing you. Fowler goes flat hunting and he feels very lonely. Quote, I thought of Fuang just because of her complete absence. So it always is. When you escape to a desert, the silence shouts in your ear. Lovely expression. Fowler is sitting at a table thinking about two young American girls when a bomb goes off. He's so inured to violence in this world that the bomb going off doesn't even get a new paragraph. He must be at a very low ebb. Listen to the whole paragraph... quote one of the girls rose and laid on their table the money for the ices. Before going, she looked around the cafe and the mirrors caught her profile at every freckled angle. There was only myself left and a dowdy, middle-aged French woman who was carefully and uselessly making up her face. Those two hardly needed makeup: The quick dash of lipstick a combed through the hair. For a moment, her glance had rested on me. It was not like a woman's glance, but a man's, very straightforward, speculating on some course of action. Then she turned quickly... "'To her companion, we'd better be off.' "'I watched them idly as they went out side by side "'into the sun-splintered street. "'It was impossible to conceive either of them "'a prey to untidy passion.' They did not belong to rumpled sheets and the sweat of sex. Did they take deodorants to bed with them? I found myself for a moment envying them, their sterilised world, so different from this world that I inhabited, which suddenly inexplicably broke in pieces. Two of the mirrors on the wall flew at me and collapsed halfway. The dowdy Frenchwoman was on her knees in a wreckage of chairs and tables. Her compact lay open and unhurt in my lap, and oddly enough, I sat exactly where I had sat before, although my table had joined the wreckage around the Frenchwoman. A curious sound filled the café, the regular drip of a fountain, and looking at the bar I saw rows of smashed bottles which let out their contents in a multicoloured stream, the red of Porto, the orange of Cointreau, the green of Chartreuse, the cloudy yellow of Pastis, across the floor of the café. The French woman sat up and calmly looked around for her compact. I gave it her, and she thanked me formally, sitting on the floor. I realised that I didn't hear her very well. The explosion had been so close that my eardrums are still to recover from the pressure. I had to do a double take on that paragraph, only realising afterwards that something truly horrific had happened. We have suddenly, inexplicably broke in pieces as the bomb goes off. He doesn't say the narrator, new paragraph, a huge explosion ripped through the cafe. No, it's just very subtle and very understated. He's acting like the living dead, almost like a zombie in his misery. He thinks Frong is in the milk bar at the same time, but he bumps into Pyle, who says she was quote warned not to go. And that word warn, is pretty important. Pyle is not the innocent that the narrator has been painting him as. Fowler is outraged that Fong was, quote, warned. He says, quote, there mustn't be any American casualties, must there? And I'm thinking, if that's the case, surely Fowler is going to end up being framed for Pyle's murder on the basis of jealous lover rather than any American diplomatic reason. But actually, I got that completely wrong. He was not framed. Fowler is appalled by the, quote, innocent Pyle's involvement in the bomb. They were supposed to rally support for General Tay's pro-democracy parade. They'd been called off at the last minute. Fowler says of Pyle, quote, "'He'll always be innocent. "'You can't blame the innocent. "'They are always guiltless. "'All you can do is control them or eliminate them. "'Innocence is a kind of insanity.'" And Fowler then talks about war. He says, quote, A 200-pound bomb does not discriminate. How many dead colonels justify a child's or a trishaw driver's death when you are building a national democratic front? He's furious at the innocent casualties of this war. And then we go on to part four. We fast forward to after Paul's death, and it looks like Vigo, the policeman, is trying to frame fowler as i predicted remember i'm wrong in this prediction <laughs> fowler says quote, vigo i wish you'd tell me why you think i was concerned in Paul's death is it a question of motive that i wanted to throw back or do you imagine it was revenge for losing her and vigo says no i'm not so stupid one doesn't take one's enemy's book as a souvenir there it is on your shelf the role of the west who is this york harding And Fowler says, he's the man you're looking for, Vigo. He killed Pyle at long range. Vigo says that Pyle's dog has wet cement on his feet and that there was building work going on in Fowler's apartment the night of the murder. And when Vigo leaves, Pyle wishes he had the courage to say, I did see Pyle the night he died. Fowler believes it's Case closed, but I'm not so sure. We now go back and see how the murder was really arranged. Fowler, outraged by the attack, goes to Mr Heng to say Pyle must be stopped. Now, remember, Mr Heng is a communist sympathiser. And Heng says, quote, If you would invite him to dinner tonight at the Vieux Moulin between 8.30 and nine 30 We would talk to him on the way. And he goes on to say, Sooner or later, Heng said, and I was reminded of Captain Truin speaking in the opium house. One has to take sides if one is to remain human. So Mr Heng has agreed to look after Pyle. Some chilling final words that don't allow for any nuance. You have to take sides. There is no nuance here. Very, very difficult situation. Fowler meets Pyle and betrays him. He holds up a book to the window, and reading aloud, quotes a poem. Quote, "I drive through the streets and I care not a damn. The people they stare and they ask who I am, and if I should chance to run over a cad, I can pay for the damage if ever so bad. So pleasant it is to have money. Hey ho! So pleasant it is to have money." And Parr says, that's a funny kind of poem, with a note of disapproval. He was an adult poet in the 19th century, says Fowler. There weren't so many of them. I looked down into the street again. The trishort driver had moved away. Have you run out of drink, Parr asked. No, but I thought you didn't. And he's interrupted. Perhaps I'm beginning to loosen up, Parr said. Your influence. I guess you're good for me, Thomas. I'm thinking, I guess you're good for me. I don't think he's good for me. If only Pyle knew that he's just been betrayed. It reminds me very much of that biblical betrayal with the kiss. It's the opposite of death, poetry, kisses, art. But that was it. The poem was the signal for the death of Pyle. Fowler contemplates trying to save him somehow. And eventually, finally says, there was no harm in giving him that one chance. And he says... Don't mind being late, I said. If you do get caught, look in here later. I'll come back at 10. If you can't make dinner and wait for you. And Paul says, I'll let you know. And Fowler says, don't bother. Just come to the view Moulin or meet me here. I handed back the decision to that somebody in whom I didn't believe. He wants fate to decide Pa's future. He certainly doesn't believe in any God, as we know from his constant disparagement of his wife for being religious. He goes to the restaurant and thinks of Fuong, and he also thinks that if Pyle doesn't show, he perhaps fools himself by saying, "quote I shall tell him everything." Ultimately, Pyle doesn't show up, and he goes back to his flat and meets Fuong in the street, and then a telegram from his wife Helen arrives saying she will go ahead with the divorce proceedings, freeing him to marry Fuong. She's delighted and goes off to tell her sister, almost forgetting Pyle. And the narrator ends with the words, quote, I thought of the first day and Pyle sitting beside me at the Continental with his eye on the soda fountain across the way. Everything had gone right with me since he had died, but how I wished there existed someone to whom I could say that I was sorry. What incredible guilt the character Fowler must be feeling. And there we go, the novel ends. So I'm just going to briefly go back through the questions I had at the end of the last podcast. Did Fowler murder Pyle? Yes, he did, indirectly. How will they survive the bazooka attack? Well, he was saved. Pyle saved Fowler's life. Will Fowler get a divorce? Yes, he does. Will he remain happy with Furong? Who knows? And why is Pyle importing the plastic? It's not for toys, no. It was for those bicycle bombs to try and gain some support for general tay so my general thoughts about the book it's a very moving novel about the horrors of war and the difficult moral decisions people can be forced to take and it's also a really interesting love story a love triangle story there's some wonderful descriptions of vietnam in the book i was fortunate enough to go on holiday to vietnam three years ago And this just brought it all back. I managed to visit Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, which in this book is called Saigon. Listen to this wonderful description. I went home to leave a note for Phuong in the Rue Katina and then drove down past the port as the sun set. The tables and chairs were out on the quay beside the steamers and the grey naval boats and the little portable kitchens burned and bubbled. In Boulevard de la Somme, the hairdressers were busy under the trees and the fortune tellers squatted against the walls with their soiled packs of cards. In Cholon, you were in a different city where work seemed to be just beginning rather than petering out with the daylight. It was like driving into a pantomime set. The long vertical Chinese signs and the bright lights and the crowd of extras led you into the wings where everything was suddenly so much darker and quieter." In the book, there's an awful lot of gambling and drinking and drugs. The dice game really reminds him of Vietnam and the horrifying conflict. You can't really separate the two. Quote, and he's talking about the game 421, which is a dice game that the French played. Quote, how those figures and the sight of dice bring back to the mind the war years in Indochina. Anywhere in the world where I see two men dicing, I am back in the streets of Hanoi or Saigon or among the blasted buildings of Fat Diem. I see the parachutists protected like caterpillars by their strange markings, patrolling by the canals. I hear the sound of the mortars closing in. And then we have the opium taking, as I mentioned. We also have in this second half much more about the horrors of war and how the innocent can get caught up in war. Captain Truan, who's the colonial Frenchman, says quote, the first time I dropped napalm I thought this is the village where I was born. That is where Monsieur Dubois, my father's old friend lives. The baker, I was very fond of the baker when I was a child, is running away down there in the flames I've thrown. The men of Vichy did not bomb their own country. I felt worse than them. So overall, it's been an enjoyable read, a very tough read. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. What were your favourite parts of the book? What ideas did you think were really interesting? Are there any passages that you just thought were really wonderful? I would love to read out some of your thoughts and comments or passages that you enjoyed in the next podcast. I'd like to talk a little bit now about March's book, Bewilderment by Richard Powers. It was published last year in 2021. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to 50%, which is around page 144. I've never read any Richard Powers, but he used to be a computer programmer, and I used to be a computer programmer, so I'm kind of interested in his take on things. Also, his previous book about trees, Overstory, was supposed to be fabulous. I haven't read that one. All I know about him is that he is American and very popular. So I'm going to read the first page and I'll offer up my comments and thoughts. But we might never find them. We'd set up the scope on the deck on a clear autumn night on the edge of one of the last patches of darkness in the eastern US. Darkness this good was hard to come by, and so much darkness in one place lit up the sky. We pointed the tube through a gap in the trees above our rented cabin. Robin pulled his eye from the eyepiece, my sad, singular, newly-turning nine-year-old in trouble with this world. Exactly right, I said. We might never find them. I always tried to tell him the truth. If I knew it, and it wasn't lethal, he knew when I lied anyway. But they're all over, right? You guys have proved it. Well, not exactly proved. Maybe they're too far away. Too much empty space or something. "'His arms pinwheeled as they did when words defeated him. "'We were closing in on bedtime, which didn't help. "'I put my hand on his wild auburn mop, her colours, Ally's. "'And what if we never heard a peep from out there? "'What would that say?' "'He held up one hand.' Alyssa used to say that when he concentrated, you could hear him whirring. His eyes narrowed, staring down into the dark ravine of trees below. His other hand soared the cleft of his chin, a habit he resorted to when thinking hard. He soared with such a vigour, I had to stop him. "'Robbie, hey, time to land!' His palm pushed out to reassure me he was fine. He simply wanted to run with the question for another minute, into the darkness whilst still possible. "'If we never heard anything, like ever?' I'd honoured encouragement to my scientist. Easy does it. Stargazing was finished for tonight. We'd had the clearest evening in a place known for rain. A full hunter's moon hung fat and red on the horizon. Through the circle of trees, so sharp it seemed within easy reach, the Milky Way spilled out, countless speckled places in a black steam bed. If you held still, you could almost see the star's wheel. Nothing definitive, that's what. I laughed. He made me laugh once a day or more, in good stretches. Such defiance, such radical scepticism. He was so me, he was so her. No, I agreed, nothing definitive. Now, if we did hear a peep, that would say tons. Indeed, there would be time enough another night to say exactly what. For now, it was bedtime. He put his eye up to the barrel of the telescope for a last look at the shining core of the Andromeda galaxy. And that's the first couple of pages. So I wonder what happened to Ali. And I wonder why Robin, his nine-year-old son, is in trouble with the world. And his son's obviously desperate to hear something from out in the universe with his, I guess it's a telescope. I'm not quite sure. They're doing a lot of listening. I'm looking forward to reading that and finding out about robin and about the narrator and about ali who i assume isn't around anymore Alyssa, thanks very much for listening if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear them the email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the bookshook youtube channel and if you want to recommend a future book to read together do let me know i look forward to discussing the first part of bewilderment by Richard Powers at the next episode of Bookshook on the 2nd Friday of March.